The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. And I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. It might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcb.org. Well, hello, Virginia. Hello, Wren, or should I say hello from afar? Yes, this is a this is a first for rights here, yes. rights now. Yes, as we are recording this remotely via software, I do not understand. Mm-hmm. So, uh, while the Disability Law Center of Virginia is still operating, we are doing that mostly remotely, and so we are recording all of our podcasts remotely because some of us do not have immune systems. That's true, and it's very important to protect ourselves during this time, as well as our uh, constituents. So we're going to model that ourselves. Um, We're gonna be talking about a topic that's super important and very complicated, like most of our topics. Social Uh, security. Social security. I'm sorry, I didn't realize you were doing a dramatic pause there. It's not a problem. So, yes, today we will be talking about Social Security and sort of, I think, the the first of many we will be doing, kind of a primer episode, I think. Yeah, um, we were lucky enough to have the fantastic Elizabeth Horn here, not with us in the studio, but like with us spiritually and on the Zoom call that we recorded this from. Um But before we jump into that, let's check out Disability in the News. Good day, I'm Tamara Watkins. I am the Fiscal Administrative Assistant for DLCB. On Friday, April 10th, the American Council of the Blind and more than 75 other national, state, and local disability organizations sent a letter urging Congress to attest the voting rights of people who are blind and disabled. This letter is urging Congress to mandate states to have an accessible online absentee voting system. Many states have currently adapted a vote by mail systems, which is often inaccessible for those with disabilities. Americans with disabilities have fought for decades to secure the same voting rights as all other Americans. Congress must make it clear to the state that implementing vote by mail without offering an accessible absentee voting alternative for people with disabilities is not acceptable, said ACB President Dan Spoon. There is no nationwide approach to creating accessible absentees ballots and As such, many voters with disabilities are included with absentee ballots. Some states have implemented accessible solutions to this problem, such as remote voting through the use of online and remote ballots making devices. As of the time of recording, there is no 
distinct resolution to the issue, but we are following the story closely and hope you will too. Find out more at acb.org. All right, well, welcome, Elizabeth. We are so lucky to have you here um, talking to us about Social Security. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Social Security, this is one of those topics that I find to be really kind of daunting and scary within the world of disability. So just just to guide me in gently, can can you just explain to me what even is Social Security? Absolutely. Um, and I'd like just to start by saying that at the Law Center, the Disability Law Center of Virginia, we think of these benefits as absolutely foundational for folks who have disabilities because it allows a, um, an income stream that can help keep them uh, stable um, and keep lives going as best as possible. So we're very committed to helping people understand this program, which is run by a giant bureaucracy. Uh, The Social Security Administration could be considered maybe the second largest bureaucracy on the planet, maybe second only to the IRS. Think about that for a moment. That's daunting. You're the little guy trying to access that vital benefit. So our job is to disentangle it and help you make sense of it and understand what it is you're trying to prove to begin with. So to to Virginia's question, what is Social Security? It's basically a federal program uh, connected with the program that pays um, people's retirement benefits, death benefits, and so on. This is the disability component of that federal program doesn't matter where you live in the country, you can still access it. Um, And it basically consists of two separate programs, which we'll talk about. Um, There is a third, which we can touch on if we need to. Starting with SSDI, which stands for Social Security Disability Insurance. That program is for people who have, quote, paid into the system. That means they've paid their FICA taxes on their job, and those monies go into a fund. And if they need to access a disability benefit and have enough credits in that system, they can apply. Now, if you want to find out how many credits you need, you could go to our website where I have a series of articles or guides that will direct you on that. That can be found at dlcb.org slash social security and you'll find the guide that says uh, when applying and that will tell you about the credits that you need to qualify financially for an SSDI benefit okay so it sounds like SSDI again kind of in like layman's terms is that you had to have worked well, you so had to have worked in jobs that where payroll taxes are withdrawn. So you've heard people talk about working under the table, so to speak. Those earnings are not going to count. Okay? And the other thing is you have to keep your credits in the system current. So 
a really good example is if someone has decided to be a stay-at-home parent and they do so for five years in a row without paying into the system, their insurability in the disability program uh, could be compromised. So it's very important to keep the credits current. I recommend people try to work even part-time because it doesn't take much to earn your credits. So for folks who maybe haven't worked for a long time or have never been able to work, uh, what option do they have? Okay, well, that's a great question uh, that I was going to refer to next, which is your Supplemental Security Income Program, or SSI. And that is designed specifically for the people you're referring to who haven't worked, perhaps precisely because of their disability, or who simply elected not to work. Um, and that program is a set amount, the current um, payment is $783 a month, and it comes with Medicaid, which of course you can apply for anyway nowadays, since Virginia has fortunately expanded its Medicaid program. Um, now with the SSI program, however, there are some financial restrictions. So for example, you can't have resources in excess of $2,000. If you're a couple, that amount is $3,000. So, you know, if you've got a second vehicle, for example, that's worth something, or even a life insurance policy that's worth over $1,500, um, you know, things like that are, are going to make it difficult for you to access that program. Or if you happen to have um, money, you know, in a savings account, that could prevent you from accessing SSI. Um, and in terms of income, um, if you had income, uh, that might also affect how much you would get. Um, of course, these programs assume you can't work. And later we can talk about how you would work if you had one of these benefits, how you would do that safely. So Elizabeth, I, I have two sort of quick questions to clarify my understanding. I think I know the answer to one of them. Um, so when people talk about, when people say I'm on disability, it sounds like for the most part what they're talking about is SSDI. You know, often people don't know the difference in the terms. They may say disability and it may actually be an SSI benefit. So you, you really should try and clarify, especially when people call into our agency, we, we like to clarify, um, you know, which benefit they have. And sometimes people just don't know. And my other question was, I know that people when they retire um, or when they turn 65, sometimes start collecting social security. Are they collecting SSI or SSDI? Okay, well, two things. If you are a person on an SSDI benefit and you um, reach your retirement, retirement age, which whatever that is, and it, it's not earlier than 66 for anyone now, um, then it simply converts to a retirement benefit, which is almost exactly the same amount as your disability benefit. Okay, now if you're somebody that has been on SSI 
and you reach the age of 65, it will simply convert to what's considered to be a low-income elderly SSI benefit. The amount is identical. It just converts, basically. So it sounds like, again, kind of based on what you've already talked about, that getting SSI or SSDI is pretty narrow. It's it's not, you know, it's kind of a very small hoop to jump through. So how do how does a person even know if they qualify for S Social Security in any form? Yeah, this, this is just such a great question because really accessing this program is difficult. You, you kind of need to know this up front. Just because you have a condition that affects you and you may seem, think it, um, is disabling to you does not mean that Social Security is going to agree with that. So they have come up with a whole series of uh, criteria or questions that they ask um, and they review the evidence that you submit to see if you do in fact meet their criteria. And if you like, I can really very briefly go over those criteria. Would that be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is, you know, particularly the idea of like, kind of what Virginia said, getting disability, and the idea of having a disability. Um, that definition that I have might be very different than Social Security's definition. Right. <clears throat> well, their, so, their definition is set in stone. So Social Security has a very tightly defined definition of disability. They start with the question of, do you have a severe physical and or mental disability? You can have multiple conditions. Um, you don't have to just put forward one because the combination of conditions could be what make, make it difficult for you to work. Secondly, the condition or conditions has to have lasted 12 months already or is expected to last 12 months or result in death. And thirdly, the condition may what's called meet a listing. And this means that it's automatically considered you know, very, very limiting. And examples of that might be somebody who is a quadriplegic or somebody who uh, has Lou Gehrig's disease or you know, anybody who knows anything about these knows that person's not going to be able to work. Mm -hmm. So, um, but outside of those listings, of which there are many that you could meet, um, you have to prove that you can't work. And I'm talking about not being able to perform any job in the entire national economy. Now think about that. Uh, think of the simplest job you can think of. And you have to not be able to even do that. Yeah, that's, that's a lot more narrow than I would have thought. Yes, it's very narrow. So they're not trying to replace the professional's income. They really just want to know, can you work at all or can you not? Now, that being said, I need to clarify immediately that if you are over 50, those criteria do relax. And they add in questions about your age, your education, your work experience. 
and they do consider the fact that aging has an impact on a person's ability to work. So they have these benchmarks at 50, 55, and 60 that gradually relax the criteria. Okay, so it's important to keep that in mind. The older you get, uh, it is easier to get the benefit. Okay, now keep in mind too that while you think about that really, really simple job and wonder if, if you have to rule that out too, there's lots of things that can rule out even simple jobs, like a person's memory or inability to focus or chronic pain that is so persistent across a day that can cause such exhaustion and fatigue that that person isn't going to be able to sustain the simple work across a day. And so those are things that Social Security will consider. But you have to have really, really good evidence of that. And they, those are tend to be more subjective things that are harder to document. And that's why I want to get into the next topic, if you don't mind, of how to document your disability. So. Are we good about switching gears here? Yeah, get, get us ready. Tell us what we need to do to apply for Social Security. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all, all of us need to apply. All of us across the board, just everybody. So I know. I'm ready. I'm ready. I see myself in these descriptions. I'm getting concerned. <laughs> Sign us up. All right, so we, we talked about um, the two programs that you could potentially qualify for, and we've talked about the definition of disability. Let's talk about what it takes to document your disability, convince Social Security you have one. Now, for starters, you have to be having regular treatment from the medical profession. And unfortunately, they don't give a lot of weight to uh, non-traditional or alternative medicines. So, you know, if you're getting acupuncture to treat your pain, uh, that may be somewhat helpful, but you really need uh, a pain doctor that's going to document it. Um, and that, that's true just generally. So you need to be going regularly. And in addition, you really need to be seeing specialists because Primary care doctors do not treat disability. Um, and if you have a condition that is so impairing that it prevents you from work, Social Security assumes you need a specialist. So uh, don't let that primary care doctor be treating your cardiac condition or um, your epilepsy or whatever. Okay, so like, so yeah, so like if someone had like a mental health condition, you would also need to see a psychiatrist as well as a GP or like a chronic pain, a rheumatologist or something. Absolutely. And, you know, checking in with a psychiatrist once a year is not going to be adequate. Um, and of course, you know, we assume too, they, Social Security will assume that, that you know, the treatment of choice will likely be medications, and so you're going to need to see that psychiatrist at least four times a year. And then you'd also want to be having psychotherapeutic treatment. 
um, hopefully, to bulk up your evidence that you need to see someone regularly, much more regularly than the psychiatrist. Um, and then, of course, when you go and see your primary care doctor, you, you want to let them know how you're doing psychiatrically so that they can document as well. You want all of your records in sync. Um, I'd like to also mention for a moment that it's very important what you tell your doctor. Mm. Um, okay, so I, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I get review records from doctors and, and it says, patient says he's fine. Well, you know, when you go into the appointment and the doctor casually says, how you doing? And you'll say, I'm fine. Well, he puts that in the record. Think of the message that that sends. You're not fine, right? That's what this is all about. So you have to say, well, I, you know, maybe I have felt better. Um, but, you know, for the last three months, this is what I've been dealing with. And you get right to the meat of the matter and what your symptoms and limitations are. That kind yeah. of makes me think a lot of like people with chronic pain, where like the question would be like, how are you doing today? And like, they might say, yeah, I'm doing great because their pain's at a five rather than an eight. Exactly. But that doesn't mean the pain isn't there. And so kind of being able to interpret what you're experiencing like in a way that your doctor is going to document like no this person is constantly experiencing pain but it's just not a 10 today or what have you that is a fantastic point you've got to quantify and qualify and you've got to give descriptive words that, that explain how things have changed or even stayed the same but maybe intensified um, pain is such a good example, and, and um, you know, almost all disabling conditions um, do cause some pain. <laughs> you know, psychic pain for sure, um, but physical pain. And so that is one of the symptoms that really has to be uh, carefully described to your treating professionals. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so another example is where... People will say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to the gym um, and, you know, I just got back from vacation. <laughs> well, you may have gone to the Bermudas, but you stayed in your room the whole time because you couldn't put one foot in front of the other. But just getting out for a change of scenery was your purpose. and You didn't want to miss the reunion or whatever. So don't be... Don't be sending messages to your doctor that you're, you know, flying around the country or, or whatever. Um, and then, you know, as far as um, going to the gym, maybe your doctor has prescribed that. And maybe when you get there, you can only last 10 minutes. Again, quantify and qualify what it is you can and can't do. It sounds like it also might be useful, obviously, to understand how to talk to your doctor about what you're experiencing, but also to let your doctor know kind of what your end goal is. So when you're having these conversations, you know, it's not just being able to say, yeah, like my chronic pain was a five today, so I was able to move and have breakfast. It's also saying like, doc, I really am struggling and think that I'm not going to be able to work. And so I'm going to need 
to make sure we have all this documented so I can pursue Social Security. Right. Now, that is a important conversation, but I have to tell you it's also a delicate conversation. Um, you don't want to have that conversation prematurely when your symptoms and limitations are mild. Mm -hmm. uh, because you can set up in the record that you're malingering or seeking a benefit be before it's really necessary and, and your end goal is just to get, you know, um, um, live on the dole, so to speak. I, I know I have had the experience there. I think that probably a lot of our listeners have had the experience of like, you know, doctors assuming people with chronic conditions like might be med seeking or might be malingering or might be trying to get attention or are just hysterical because they are women under the age of 30. Um, so, you know, having this context is really important and knowing how to frame it. Like, I, I think that this is a really good service you're providing, Elizabeth. Well, good. Um, and so I think the way you do that is you have the conversation in stages where, you know, you begin to talk about how it's, um, um, interfering with your ability to get to work on time or how you had to go home early three days this week or you're constantly calling in sick and then you know and again try and document that I, I lost 16 hours of work this week because I could not get there um, uh, or I'm I always think of the word, um, and this might be my mental health background specifically, but I always think of the word functioning yes. and the idea of what's impacting your functioning. Um, and I think that's a really good way to frame this to medical professionals is about this is how this impacts my daily ability to function. Right, right. So, you know, we already know that there's a host of things that have to be done even before you get to work. And if you can't even get through those activities of daily living without huge delays, um, then just getting to the office and carrying on is going to be difficult. So the better job you can do communicating to your doctor um, the frequency and intensity of your symptoms and then the limitations those impose on your daily functioning, including work, better. You're educating the doctor so that he or she can put into your notes or your record what's going on. And then when you allege disability, then Social Security has something in front of them to look at. So, so what, what would someone need to do then to actually like literally apply for Social Security once okay. they have that documentation? All right. Well, okay, so it's a, it's a pretty straightforward process. Um, you can certainly apply online by going to ssa.gov. Right on the home page, there is a link to disability. And within that link, you'll see, um, you know, start an application, okay? Now, unfortunately, with SSI, you can't apply online right now, okay? And if you oh, wow. don't have it, if you don't have internet access, then even with SSDI, you would have to do it otherwise. So the way you do it is you contact the national social security number, 
And I'm just going to give it to you, um, but you can find it um, easily. It's 1-800-772-1213. Now, when you call there, be prepared for a delay. You've got to hang in. They will call you back if you leave a number, and they're good about that. So don't hesitate to do that. And then they'll you tell them you want to apply for disability, and they will set up an appointment in the closest office. Now, unfortunately, the offices are closed now. Okay, so that this could be a barrier. So um, for people. For people listening after the fact, we're recording this um, sort of during the COVID-19 quarantining. Hopefully this will not be in effect for super duper long and everything will be fine soon. But, um, you know, as of recording, probably as of publication, um, we are under quarantine. So the offices are closed at the moment. And Elizabeth, sure. you were talking about sort of the, the, the idea that you you know, that you can't apply online, you have to call this number. Is that Virginia specific or is this across the U.S.? Nationwide, um, but again, that's strictly for SSI, okay? okay? SSDI, you can apply online and should apply online. It's always better because you have the leisure um, of filling out the application carefully, slowly. You can use a PIN number to get back in. It's a long application. Um, anyway, if, if you happen to be not doing it online, the interview can be conducted by phone. So uh, that would eliminate that barrier of, of not being able to go into the office. But they send the toll-free number folks will send you a form to fill out in advance of the interview. And that allows you to gather all the information Social Security needs, such as uh, what you consider to be your disabling conditions, all of the treating um, doctors and therapists and so on that are seeing you and their addresses and phone numbers and so on, all of the medications you're taking, and your work history. That's primarily what they're interested in, in primarily the last 15 years of your work history. Uh, okay, so once Social Security gets it, they send it over to a state agency called Disability Determination Services, or DDS. And then that agency has analysts that collect the medical evidence, review it, and make a decision. So the Social Security office has no more involvement with that while it's under review. So don't drop records off at Social Security. Okay, deal directly with your analyst, and usually the number to that office is in the letter that they send you. So are there any more like tips for success um, while people are going through this process to just make sure that they help their case as much as possible? Sure. Um, well, one example, um, we've talked a lot about reporting your symptoms accurately and all. DDS is going to send you a form called function. It, it wants to literally know about how you function throughout the day. It's the form over function? Yes. <laughs> yes, and they, they want to know how, you, you know, are you doing uh, daily tasks like cooking, household um, care? Uh, are you driving? Are you going to the post office? You know, how are you spending your day? Are you socializing? Are you recreating? 
how you answer those questions, it's very important. And I'll tell you, a lot of people want to answer them in the most glowing terms possible because they don't want to see themselves as disabled. Uh, yeah, that's I, hard. It really is, and I, I understand that. Unfortunately, this is not the time um, to be upbeat. <laughs> uh, it is the time to be clear and convincing about just how limiting your life is now. And so yeah. take care of that and have a family member read it for accuracy and make sure you're really, now don't over-exaggerate your limitations, but definitely don't uh, paint a rosy picture, okay? That's a big one. The other thing is it's imperative that you maintain your health care. If you've lost your job, because of your disability, you need to sign up for Medicaid immediately. There may be some income restrictions in the family, but hopefully that won't apply to you. There are also clinics that you can go to, free clinics. Um, unfortunately, they don't have specialists, but they're, they're pretty good at documenting people's conditions. Um, and I have a guide on, on our webpage uh, the link for that I gave you earlier. Yeah, we'll, put, we'll put the link in the show notes so people can have access to it. Um, sure. And as far as Medicaid, I'm sure we will have a whole episode about Medicaid at some point. Yes, so. Co covervirginia.org. Easy peasy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the guide I'm referring to is called Maintaining, um, I think it's called Maintaining Healthcare. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but something along that line, and it gives you all kinds of ways to continue your health care if you've lost your insurance. Okay, so it's just so important that there not be any gaps in your treatment. Okay, it's also important to show up at your appointments. I mean, if you have to cancel, be sure to reschedule immediately. Um, and also, you know, follow your doctor's uh, recommendations. Um, I mean, if you desperately disagree with them, we'll have a discussion. But if you're not doing your part with what the doctor has recommended, then Social Security is going to look at that as though you're, you're not uh, trying to be well. I think so, it's kind of when you mentioned earlier this idea of like, you know, utilizing traditional medical practitioners rather than alternative health ones while it's true that again like acupuncture and things of that can be helpful to your condition those should all be documented by primary care physicians because those aren't going to hold the same weight as traditional medical care right and i'm not suggesting you not do those things but don't count on those things as providing the medical evidence needed for Social Security. Social Security even has regulations that state a medical document has to be given priority or greater weight than alternative doctors or practitioners. So while I'm not suggesting you not see those helpful alternative treatments, um, don't rely on those treatments your social security application. Uh, you, you need to get and stay connected with the medical model. 
Yeah, the, your social security application probably isn't the time to try to be as alternative as possible. I think it's the best time to stick right within those regulations as tightly mm -hmm. as you can, because I right. think it's so easy to get denied. Yes. Well, and to your point, exactly, people do get denied. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate, but the system is designed to kind of weed people out and they do it in stages. So believe it or not, seven out of eight applicants get denied. Really? Yes. Yes. And it is. That seems like a lot. It is. It is. But people don't know how to get their applications well documented from the get go. So I know okay. we could talk about this topic all day because there's so much to talk about, but um to kind of to, to kind of start wrapping this up is there a really good place where we could get resources to better understand this process and to be able to make the best social security application you can possibly have well absolutely and i, I would like to encourage everybody to um, start with our website where we have a social security resource uh, an entire page devoted to Social Security and the process. And these are in the form of guides and they're outlined um, or laid out according to the process. So there's one about applying and then a whole other section of guides on appealing. And there's even guides on once you get approved, working and keeping a benefit and doing that safely. Uh, but I do want to stress the uh, tip when appealing guide that you'll find on that web page because that's crucial. If you get denied, it's really important that you appeal and that you do so within 60 days. They take their deadlines very seriously. And if you get denied again, and actually um, about half of those appeals will be denied as well, then you need to appeal again, again within 60 days. And then you'll have what's called a request for hearing. That's what that appeal is. And, and you'll end up having a hearing um, before uh, a judge. Um, but not to worry, it's a private uh, appointment. These are judges that strictly do social security hearings. It's, it's not um, uh, traffic court. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and um, you, know, you want to have representation and that guide will tell you all about how to obtain that. So I would think using our resources online would be your best friend right now. And you can go back to it numerous times for more information, depending on what stage you're at. Um, you can find other things online, um, but honestly, uh, I'd be leery of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd stay away from that, yeah. Well, we know our resources are the best because Elizabeth <laughs> is the one that crafted all of them. So. And I, I cannot emphasize this enough. So Elizabeth really is sort of the repository of all social security knowledge at the Disability Law Center of Virginia. So I appreciate so much you taking time out of your extremely busy schedule um to come and impart some of this wisdom on us and our listeners so thank you so much thank oh, you so much you, you are so welcome i am so happy to do this and i hope you'll ask again because you're right there's more to talk about i'm sure we will we're yeah. not done with you elizabeth <laughs> okay all right take care everyone and now for a dlcd highlights <laughs>
Sophia worked with Delvin to develop a new public accommodation survey, which launched last week. It's available on our website at dlcv.org backslash accessibility slash and slash accommodations. The survey allows the community members to efficiently report physical accessibility issues, such as problems with parking, path and travel entrances. The LCV is then able to follow up with these accessibility issues through our case and project work. Thanks again to Elizabeth for taking the time to chat with us. Yes, we hope that all of you are using this time of social distancing to build up your knowledge on disability rights and listening to our entire back catalog of episodes, but especially this one because social security is probably our most requested topic. Yeah, it's definitely one we get the most calls about. So this is going to be a great episode to, to have out there so people can continue getting information about this very complicated subject. Yeah, and if you found it helpful, be sure to share this far and wide. Share it with your friends. Um, share it with people who aren't your friends but need to know about it. Share it with your mortal enemies because <laughs> even they deserve to be educated. Even they deserve Social Security benefits if they need them if they need them. But and thank you <laughs> thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Virginia Ferris. And I'm Ren Fazuski. And this has been Right Here, Right Now. <laughs>